I'm Trisha, and welcome to Is It Recess Yet? Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy, a podcast about my years as a teenage concert violinist and my quest to evolve beyond that identity. Follow me on my journey, and along the way you'll get an insider's look into the classical music world and listen to conversations with innovative artists who are forging new and playful paths into creativity. So let's go, because I think I hear the recess bell. You are valuable because you exist. You are worthy because you exist. And if you can do these other things, that's wonderful. But your ability to do them or not do them doesn't say anything about the value of you as a being. My guest today is Shannon Wilkinson. Shannon has been a life coach since 2003. She uses mind-bending tools like neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis to help clients change their minds, change their behaviors, and ultimately change their world. Shannon works with clients all over the world to find focus, get clear, and maintain momentum. Her clients have written books, run marathons, started and grown world-changing businesses, become better parents and partners, and much more. Shannon is also the co-host of the Getting to Good Enough podcast about letting go of perfectionism and doing more of what you love. I'm a life coach and I came here through sort of a circuitous path because it didn't exist when I was first thinking about things I wanted to do. Um, I went to college and ended up picking a major that was the broadest major I could pick, which was American studies. And that let me take the widest variety of classes. And that was always very interesting to me to just be able to learn as much about as many different things as I could. Um, And then I I worked for a theater company right out of college in administration. Then I did some other jobs. I moved and sort of felt like I started over again, even though I was just fresh out of college. But I ended up working for a brewery that went public and managed the public offerings and then the shareholders that we had after that. And which was sort of funny because after going to this small liberal arts college where there was no math requirement, (laughs) I was suddenly worried about numbers and, and paying attention to all that, analyzing things. And, and then I took it a step further and left that company to start my own business and became an investor relations consultant. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be my own boss and, uh, I sort of geared everything towards doing that, although I didn't ever have any idea that I would do it as a business consultant, um, especially to start. But that's how I got headed in this direction. And I did that for a number of years until I realized that um, working with Wall Street wasn't really doing it for me anymore and that it I just it wasn't. Uh, feeding me. It didn't feel like work that I really wanted to be doing. I was good at it. My business was successful, but it, I just wasn't happy with the actual work. And I started 
going to, um, essentially she was a coach, but this was back in the early two thousands and, and we didn't call it that then. (laughs) Um, but she started helping me sort of figure out like what I really wanted. And I sort of went down all these random paths and, and, um, like I'm certified in Tellington T-Touch, which is a method of body work and training with animals and, you know, all this sort of random stuff. I did a lot of freelance, um, writing. I wrote for magazines about animals. And then I realized I wanted to do what she did. And I said, I told her that, and I said, what do I do? And she said, well, you should go get trained in Pennsylvania by these people. They're the best. And I believe it was a month later, I was on a plane to Pennsylvania for a 10 day training. And, uh, that's how I got started in coaching. And that was back in 2003. And you are a life coach for social entrepreneurs. Can you talk a little right. bit about how you came to that specific part of the demographic and why, I guess, why are you interested in those folks? What are their uh, characteristics? What interests me most about working with social entrepreneurs is that they are dedicating their work to making the world a better place. And, uh, I love entrepreneurship and, you know, I, like I said, I started my consulting practice back in 1996. And, um, and I mean, I've, I've been an entrepreneur way before that. And so that is something that always inspires me and I'm inspired by that energy and I want to help people who want to help people. That's the main quality that, that draws me to that group. And I also, uh, want to make clear that I'm, I'm pretty broad in what I identify as a social entrepreneur. You know, there's a very, there's sort of a very specific definition or a way that people might think about that. But I think about it as someone who is inspired to make their part of the world better and that they're doing that on their, uh, you know, they're doing that from their own inspiration. So, and, and you can be doing that as an employee, you can be doing that as a volunteer, you can be doing that as a parent, you could be doing that, you know, as an artist, there are many ways to put your sort of work effort toward making the world better. One of the things I have admired about you is that um, you're a life coach, but you really put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. You are transparent about your own journey and the ways you've coached yourself through new endeavors. Right. Um, you've given us a little window into how um, kind of circuitous your path was, and that requires a certain amount of reiteration, right? Um, yes, Can you give us some examples of some of the things you've coached yourself through, things that you've done that you never thought you could do, um, and maybe a little bit about um, how you got from point A to point B, like, I can't ever do this, to, oh my gosh, I did this. (laughs) Well, the first one that comes to mind, because you're right, I've done this a lot, um, but the first one that comes to mind is uh, back in... 
2003, if you talked to me, I would have told about um, working out or exercising or any sort of active stuff. I would have told you that I'm allergic to exercise <laughs> and I'm doing big finger quotes. <laughs> and um, uh, everyone who knew me, um, I was, I was involved in sports and things during like high school, like middle school, high school. And then it all fell off when I went to college and I would go through spats of walking or doing an exercise class or something like that. But I really did not like exercising. And the idea of like working out and sweating just was foreign to me. Like doing that because I wanted to was just ridiculous. But a few things coalesced and I actually got some training in, uh, or I got coached during one of my trainings around this. And I knew that I needed to do something about it. I had some health scares, some, some things came up. And after that coaching, I just started feeling compelled to do things. And in 2000, I decided I wanted to climb a mountain. And in 2007, I climbed my first mountain. And then I climbed multiple mountains after that. In the middle of all of that, I decided, mm, maybe I could run. And even like I'm climbing 12,000 foot mountains and I'm still saying like, oh, I'm not a runner. I can't run. That's not me. Uh, you know, I'm not built for running. But I started to get this hint of an idea like, well, what if I could run? Like, maybe I could do that. And I started running and my first race was a half marathon. And I, like, I did so well in it and I had so much fun and I couldn't believe it. It also was hard and hurt and like, you know, it was not easy to get there, but it was so much fun. And then it occurred to me, well, and that, I think that was in April. And then I thought, well, I wonder if I could run a marathon. And so I signed up for an organization called Team in Training which is a big group. It's a fundraiser for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Um, and then they do these weekly trainings to help you train for a particular event. And I did that because I knew that I would be more likely to be successful if I had some accountability and some support from another group. Um, and it was really, it was a good decision because, um, my dad ended up dying during that period and had it not been for the group, I'm not sure I would have continued training. Mm. And they actually ended up being so supportive through that. And these were people I hardly knew. And, um, but that got me there and, I ran the Portland Marathon and I like stunned myself. So then the next thing was like, I wonder if I could qualify for the Boston Marathon. And so each step was like this idea of me just having this little thought of like, I wonder if I could do whatever. And so I did 
run another marathon, qualified for Boston. I wasn't sure it was going to be enough because the way they do the entries, you have to qualify by more than the time. And so I ran another marathon just to make sure I would get in. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and then I got into the Boston Marathon. And I ran the Boston Marathon in 2014. Amazing. And so that whole period of time where I went from not running at all to qualifying for the Boston Marathon was less than four years. And that was when I was in my 40s. So, you know, it wasn't like I was like 18 years old and invincible. <laughs> so much of what you are talking about with regards to, you know, your, your running, your climbing mountains, and also what you mentioned earlier about being good at something, being good at the work you were doing on Wall Street, but not not wanting to do it or it's not fulfilling mm -hmm. something for you all of that feels like it's circling around this question of identity like how do we see ourselves and what do we think mm -hmm. we're capable of and um do you feel like in these small ways you were starting to challenge how you identified yourself or what you thought you could and couldn't do and is that important to uh, being able to accomplish our goals that we can stay open in that way Absolutely. Uh, it really does make a difference. It reminds me of one time I went to a um, writing retreat. And the very first thing that the person who led it did was give each of us a hat that said writer on it. And, you know, with the idea that if you write, you're a writer. It's interesting that you bring up this idea of identity, because during all of that running training, I didn't consider myself a runner. And it wasn't until I qualified for Boston that I thought like, I guess this makes me a runner. <laughs> and so, you know, there's like, there's, there's a point where it's like, you have to be open to the possibility and you have to allow for the idea that you can be something other than what you think you are. And you, it helps to identify as something and it's not necessary. And I think there's also something that happens frequently with people where they consider themselves something, but they don't actually do it. And that's can be detrimental too. Um, you know, if you're like, oh, I'm a writer, but you don't write, you know, are you really a writer? And I think the thing about at least identity in terms of labels or how you think about yourself, that using them in a way that supports you to reach what you want to reach. So if it feels supportive, like when I was running, if it had felt supportive for me to consider myself a runner. Like I belong, I'm a runner, I can do this. And that helped me get out there more. That would have been super useful for me. The way my mind works, it was more useful for me to think I'm not a runner. I wonder if I can become a runner. And so I think it's great for people to sort of think about like, you know, what is, what is the label I'm using for myself and, or, you know, how does it feel when other people use particular labels on me and what inspires me and what feels constrictive? 
you have a podcast called Getting to Good Enough, which right. is, yeah, and the, it's a great quote. It's a podcast about letting go of perfection, which really resonated for me, and it's a lot of why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, as a classical musician and a fellow perfectionist, speaking of labels, mm-hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> I'm really interested in learning more about how to overcome our perfectionistic tendencies. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you think you became a perfectionist and why and how you began to move away from that identity? Perfectionism came out of, I mean, there's so many things that feed into it. Gosh, like as you're saying that, it's like, well, you know, I want I I want to get things right. Like I want to be the star pupil so that um, people like me and I want to um, make sure I do this the right way so I don't waste my time or I don't waste other people's time. And and there's so many different layers of of what's behind perfectionism. And mostly I think it's about uh, regardless of what the particulars are, the general idea is that it's to keep you safe. It's to, um, if you get it right, if you get it perfect, then, um, people will like you or people will take care of you or, um, you will get to do the things you want to do or, you know, it, it keeps you in the tribe, so to speak. And, So I think we all have sort of individual ways that got us into that survival thinking. Um, And, you know, for those of us that deal with perfectionistic tendencies, it ended up in the same place of like, well, I feel like I can control this if I do it the right way, if I get it perfect. There are a lot of different things that happened to me over the years where I recognize these perfectionistic tendencies. And it's hard because in a lot of ways it feels like, well, of course you would want to get it right. Like, why wouldn't you try to make it perfect? And as I've paid attention to it more specifically, as you know, in doing this podcast, we just, uh, we've, had over a hundred episodes or coming up on our two year anniversary. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot in the last two years. And I, I realized that there were so many places where perfectionism was keeping me from doing things that I never realized. And that there are just little small things you can do to help alleviate that feeling so that you can move forward. So you can do more of what you love. Um, one of the things that we talked about and, and this is actually how you and I met is, uh, one of the earlier episodes that I did with my co-host Janine was about hobbies and she suggested this and I thought, that's a weird topic. Who cares about that? <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, we'll go on. We'll go, I'll go along with it. It's, you know, fine. And, and then I started thinking about it and I realized every hobby I had ever started, I quit because of perfectionism. 
And all of these hobbies, all these things that I'd wanted to try that I never tried because of perfectionism. And the big one at that time that I was talking about was urban sketching. And I really wanted to learn urban sketching. And that's basically um, sketching in person, live, in a location. So, you know, it could be sketching your coffee cup while you're sitting there, or it could be, you know, when you're traveling and sketching the cathedral you see or something like that. And uh, I wanted to learn that just, you know, to have in my life, but I also was planning this big trip to walk the Camino de Santiago through Portugal and Spain. And so I um, wanted to learn this. And so I bought books and I did like one thing and then never did it again. And it was, there was this big disconnect between um, what I wanted to be, what I wanted it to look like, what I wanted it to feel like when I was doing and what I was producing and what it felt like when I was doing it. And then that's when the uh, cartooning course that you and I met on came up and that has made such a huge difference for me. And it's sort of like the, the training program I mentioned with the marathon, like this gave me a structure that allowed me to show up and my desire to uphold my commitment to doing this was stronger than my desire to keep safe and walk away from it. And so it has completely changed everything for me in these terms. And, and so that I have, I'm drawing regularly. I've, my drawing has, uh, improved over time and, uh, it, and it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Your drawings are great. It's been so great to, to be in that class with you. I want to circle back to that in a, a little bit, but I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, I will, you know, I'm, I'm a classical musician. A lot of this podcast is a sort of examination of that experience, you know, what it was mm -hmm. like growing up in that culture. Um, I believe, uh, and certainly through the conversations I've had, this belief has strengthened, that the classical music culture fosters both excellence and discipline, but also a tendency towards what can become a toxic perfectionism. Right. Um, you've touched on some of it, but what are some of the benefits of being a perfectionist? <laughs> and why, why that might, I'm just sort of interested in why that intersects like chicken or egg. Like, is it because classical music is so exacting in a way that it fosters that or people have a tendency towards that in their personality and then they gravitate towards this? This may not be a question to answer in like one hour, but, um, <laughs> and then um, you also touched on some of the drawbacks of perfectionism, but I'm curious about when when, if you can pinpoint when perfectionism starts to um, starts to become toxic, starts to outstay its welcome, no longer serves you. Well, one of the definitions that we use for perfectionism on the podcast is that when you put more time into something than it warrants, and so that's a that's an early indicator that things are becoming toxic or problematic. And, you know, in music, I would think that, 
you know, obviously you're practicing, but it depends on how you're practicing. I don't, you know, I never, I didn't get past ninth grade, um, symphony orchestra. So <laughs> I didn't have that. I don't have that much uh, background in that so, or that level of expertise or, or that level of practice, but putting it in terms even of like the drawing, the cartooning, like, and perhaps this is because it's physical, but there seems to be a, a balance between doing enough to sort of create a muscle memory for drawing something and doing so much that you, your hand hurts, you're tired, you can't see it straight anymore. And so the specifics are unique to each situation, but I think that the overall idea of it is universal in that understanding what's um, what the difference between striving for the best that you can achieve versus striving to be perfect. Because even if um, you play a piece perfectly, it's not static. So once you play it, you know, say you play something and it's perfect, you have that moment of perfection, but it's not, it doesn't change who you are as a person. Like it doesn't make you perfect because the next time you play it, you know, something could be off. I play clarinet, like my, there could be a problem with my read or, you know, whatever, and it wouldn't be right. And so I think that's the other part of it is that when it feels like identity, like when what you're doing is a reflection of who you are as a person. Yeah, I feel like that really hits the nail on the head for a lot of folks. It's something I'm also curious about, and I suspect there's kind of intersectionality with people who are like gymnasts or ice skaters or ballet dancers, I think, maybe mm -hmm. have a similar experience because the question of identity is one that I'm interested in too. These are very demanding, rigorous, highly technical endeavors that require the person to start it before they're fully conscious as a person because you have to start when you're so young. So I right. think what you said about identity is really valuable that we have to learn to um, defuse ourselves from the outcome of like mm -hmm. what you said, like just because I played it perfectly doesn't mean I'm perfect. And just because I made a mistake doesn't mean that I'm worthless, you know? Right. And that's hard right. when you have done something for so long that you don't remember a time when you didn't do it. And that feeling of, worthiness through action is the problem. You know, like you're, you are valuable because you exist. You are worthy because you exist. And if you can do these other things, that's wonderful. But your ability to do them or not do them doesn't say anything about the value of you as a being. And that when those things get mixed up, which is so easy. I mean, this happens to all of us, like, and it can happen at the levels you're talking about. It could happen about, you know, like how you keep your house, like, you know, that it, we get all wrapped up our identity in, in how we present to the outside world all the time. So I think this is something that is useful to be aware of in many different facets of your life.
And I feel like that is coming up a lot, um, just anecdotally in casual conversations with friends, but even in some of the podcast interviews that I'm conducting now, because we're talking during this time of COVID-19 and the pandemic. And a lot of people, right. right, and a lot of folks, you know, a lot of my friends are performing artists or artists, and they're struggling to find a balance between being gentle and protective of our mental health, which is so crucial, and remaining productive. And for a lot of performing artists, especially, like the immediate future feels very daunting because any kind of live performance and gatherings of large groups of people is just impossible. Um, mm -hmm. So the future feels very scary. And also there's economic, you know, uh, ramifications of that, certainly. Um, I think perfectionists and people who struggle with high expectations of themselves and the world are finding this time particularly challenging. Again, if they identify as somebody who does this thing and you can't do that thing, who am I? Right. Um, right. So, yeah. So I'm wondering if there are some ways we can, like, what's something we can hang on to um, that will continue us moving forward in our life in spite of the uncertainty? Like, I guess, where does our value come from and what can we kind of cultivate? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> we can have a part two. <laughs> I'm like, Shannon, help us. <laughs> well, that's such a big question. And I mean, the thing that is just coming to me, the place to start is to sort of calm down your nervous system and to take a breath and to be able to be comfortable just being for periods of time. And when everything feels so chaotic around you and you have so much uncertainty, finding these little pockets of certainty, which could be just as simple as the certainty of taking a breath and feeling your body and noticing the sensations in your body and uh, letting emotions sort of roll through you as opposed to um, grabbing hold of them and perseverating on the thoughts that they trigger and those things. And I, I think that's the basis. It's a great place to start anyway, is to start um, separating yourself by creating an oasis where you know that you're okay in that moment. I think that's so critical right now. I think I'm, for one, am finding that the anxiety or worries about the future come in waves. And I think that's part of the very strange moment we're in. Because in some ways, I think not everybody can afford to do this, of course, but some of us are being given like a really necessary break from our lives. Right. Um, and that can feel both restorative and really frightening at the same time. So I mm -hmm. think what you say about starting with your physicality, starting with your body, starting with like what's what you can like physically feel, I think is really helpful. Right. It's a helpful right. tip. When you are able to get into that place where you are calm and you're sort of, you're not under the control of these external things anymore, that that you have this more calm sort of base presence, then you can better evaluate the options and possibilities available to you. 
And it also like it literally opens up your ability to see options because when you are in that constricted, tight survival fight or flight mode, which is where you are when you're worried about, you know, finances and what's going to happen in the future. And and right now it's like every, there's so much uncertainty that literally narrows your vision to be tunnel vision, because that's what happens when you're triggered into fight or flight. Like you have to focus on this surviving this one thing. And so taking those breaths, letting your nervous system calm down does allow you to come out of that state to open up literally your vision so that you can become more aware of things and you can see options from a different place. And it's, I always worry that this feels a little, I don't know, Pollyanna or woo woo or something like, you know, I'm not saying like you need to become a, a Buddhist monk who doesn't experience anything. It's, it's more about if you're in a uncertain situation, which we're all in to some degree right now, being able to come at it from a place of wholeness and resourcefulness and, and knowing that you're okay in this moment lets you handle it in a different way than if you're coming from a place of, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I think that's one of those things that is categorized as really simple and obvious and so difficult to do because when you yes. are <laughs> when you are feeling under duress and the urgency of the moment, um, it can be incredibly difficult to take a step back and take a breath. But certainly, what you seem to be saying is that um, it seems to me like uh, mindfulness, meditation, contemplative practices, however minuscule a part it plays in your life can be really, really helpful. For people who are opening to practicing that, that's wonderful. And if that feels like too much right now, then simply, you know, even just putting your hand on your, on your heart, on your chest and taking a breath and, you know, feeling that, is a moment of mindfulness and you don't have to think about it as a mindful practice. And, and since we're talking about perfectionism here, it's very easy to be like, Oh, if I need to practice mindfulness, then I need to subscribe to this app and I need to do 20 minutes twice a day. And, and otherwise I'm not doing it right. And then it won't matter. And then you spin yourself out. So like finding sort of the smallest way, the smallest door into the practice that gives you the experience and is doable. I talk a lot in my coaching business about it being ridiculously easy. Like everyone, even if you don't think about it all the time, everyone, it's ridiculously easy to stop and take one breath. And so that's the kind of thing that I think is useful for people is you don't have to start a practice. You simply have to take a breath. I love that you talked about hobbies. It's something you mentioned on your website too, that you make a priority to always do things that um, you can do with your hands, you mentioned. Um, right. We had met on this on this drawing course, uh, Sean D'Souza's Da Vinci cartooning course, and for me it was very, the reason I decided to take it was 
um, not because I necessarily wanted to draw. I had also started a drawing practice like a year prior, but was somewhat crippled by my <laughs> imperfectionism. It took so long to draw anything. I loved the drawing process, but it took so long to draw it because everything was like painstaking. Um, so that combined with uh, going through like a life transition and feeling like I needed structure. So it was very kind mm -hmm. of unlike me in that I tried something without knowing if I really wanted to do it. Um, but I was wondering, because you touched on that and like your own journey towards taking that class and the importance of structure, if we can talk a little bit more about the importance of play and pr pleasure and being a hobbyist, I think American culture is not necessarily a super hobbyist culture. Um, right. I also struggled, even in our class, I felt a lot of like, oh, I needed, I was super competitive in a way that was not helpful. So kind of piggybacking on what you said about how important it is for us to like take a breath. Mm -hmm. What is the importance of play and pleasure and how are those things not indulgences, but actually really necessary to having a successful whole life? Uh, at one level, it's what we were just talking about. When you're thinking about play and pleasure, you're open. And when you're thinking about like, you know, I need to get this done and that pressure that that's constricting. And I, I actually had this in a very similar thought about this in terms of um, doing more marketing for my coaching practice and for the podcast. And and I had a lot of feelings about there's, you know, a right way and a wrong way to do it. And it, and it sort of seems like that might be true because, you know, there are people who do it and they're successful and there are people who do it a different way and they're not successful. And so it seems like it wouldn't be so weird to think it's, there's a right and a wrong way. And what I noticed was if I get into that energy and I have to get it right and, and that unsupportive kind of structure, it shuts me down. And when I think about it as play, like how do I want to play with my people today? Like what, how do I want to play in communicating with them? It's a completely different energy. Like I said before, I have never really had a longstanding practice of hobbies. I've always dabbled in things. And I always, I feel better when I have something to do with my hands. Like, and I think that has more to do with, um, create having a tangible result. Um, you know, in my business, there's not a tangible result. You know, I know what people tell me about coaching with me, or I can see, you know, like, oh, they came to me because they wanted to write a book and they wrote a book, but that's not me creating something. And so that's the other part of it that really helps me is to have something where I can have something tangible that I can look at and say, I did this and that, and I can have fun with it. You know, if in the drawing class, if I get too caught up in getting the assignments right, you know, with the, with the weekly assignments, if I get too caught up in, um, uh, trying to meet whatever criteria I think it is, it's not fun and I don't want to do it. Also, you know, if you go too far out on the, like, Ooh, this is fun. It doesn't matter. That doesn't help you either. So there's, there's this nice sweet spot of, 
it being fun and a challenge that I like. So, you know, I'm always sort of, well, you know, it sort of goes up and down. Sometimes it's more challenging than others, but it always needs to be a little bit of challenge. Like if we were still doing the stuff we started last August and, you know, we're like drawing teddy bears and we've been doing that for six months and I was really, really good at drawing teddy bears, but who cares? It's not fun. There's no challenge. And so having that sort of incremental challenge is great. And, um, I'm just thinking about Janine, my co-host on the podcast, she knits and she's so good at knitting now that she doesn't have to pay attention, but she sort of keeps it challenging by now she knits while she's watching TV shows. So, you know, it keeps it interesting and it's challenging enough that she likes it and she gets a tangible product and, you know, it has all of those benefits and it's not so easy that it's boring. And it's like, why bother? So it's finding that spot between it being fun, challenging enough that it's doable, but not so challenging that it creates too much frustration and, um, fun enough that you care, but you know, not so much that it doesn't matter. Can you talk about a moment that was successful for you where you really learned something that was important that maybe you didn't know at the time and also for failure? I think we often think of success and failure as being dichotomies, but sometimes they're, they're like very intertwined. Right. Well, and the thing that keeps coming up for me is that, um, as you're talking about this, about success and failure is that I have, um, had a series of head injuries Mm. and it really shifted how my brain works a lot. And, um, I, have been doing, like I said, I've been doing some work on, um, marketing my business and sort of getting at, you know, what's preventing me from doing what I want to be doing in that regard. And, um, I realized because one of the things that has changed the most for me is my memory. Mm. And, um, when I try to think of something my brain often locks up. Like it's like blank, like total brain freeze. And when I let something just come, it just comes. So even like in this conversation, when you just asked me that and I thought, like I tried to think of something, it like locked it all down. I was like, there's nothing there. And which feels like a failure. And it feels like, you know, how can I do what I'm doing if I can't talk about my own success and failure? And that it, that feels just so fundamental to what I do. And at the same time, in, in realizing that, it also feels like a success because I keep coming back over and over again. And I'm learning how to, like, feel that initial pressure and then the recognition of what's happening and then feeling bad about that and then just recognizing, oh, right, that's how my brain is now. And when I take a breath and relax and become present, then it will all be fine. Wow. 
that's thank you so much for sharing that that's so like powerfully metaphoric like that's exactly <laughs> I mean you basically <laughs> illustrated like everything we've been talking about like why yeah. <laughs> why you can't force stuff and also even in this moment with you know sheltering in place and stuff it feels like people feel a lot of pressure I think to to like make the best of it there's this ridiculous meme going around that you might have heard about like somebody said you know if you don't come out of this period of pandemic with like a new skill or a new side hustle or something then it's not that you didn't have enough time it's that you uh were lazy or didn't have enough discipline or something like that right so I think Ugh. yeah it's so gross it's so <laughs> gross I mean this person I looked him up I'm not gonna say who he is but I looked him up and it was just gross yeah yeah and totally wrong and not helpful so right Right. Yeah. And that's the, and that's exactly what we're talking about. I mean, there's so many things about this moment in time that make it really difficult to do anything productive. I mean, I feel like if you get out of bed most days, you're winning. <laughs> and also, you know, if there are people who are doing amazing things and that's, and I think like 80% of what is happening right now is how people manage their anxiety. So if you manage your anxiety by being busy and productive, you're probably being busy and productive right now. If you manage your anxiety by like hunkering down and going in and binging Netflix and, you know, eating cookies, that's probably what you're doing a lot of the time right now. And so, uh, you know, how we come out of this isn't a reflection of our intelligence or our discipline or willpower. It's a reflection of how we manage anxiety. Yeah. That's really helpful. That's really, really helpful. Thank you, Shannon. So it's my hope that this podcast would be the kind of resource that I wish had existed when I was younger and growing up. What mm -hmm. what advice would you give to your younger self to help her on her journey? Oh my gosh. I would tell her it's all okay. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to work out in ways that you can't even imagine. And sometimes it's going to be hard and sometimes it's going to be real fun and just keep like taking care of yourself, like taking care of yourself at a really deep level is the best thing that you can do. I mean, I would have loved to have had many of the insights I've had a few decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of struggle and pain to get here. And, you know, at this point I wouldn't trade it because I love where I'm at right now. And I wouldn't want to be somewhere else. And yet, you know, there was a lot of things that I went through that, oh, what, what is it? Is it Mark Twain who said, you know, I've been through a lot of terrible times and some of them even happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like that's what, uh, you know, a lot of my life was spent doing. <laughs> well, there's so much psychic energy that goes into, um, like, 
I think what you said about perfectionism being about keeping ourselves safe really mm -hmm. resonates with me. And I think those of us who, we all want to be safe. We all want to be in the tribe. Um, yeah. And that's why I think, you know, if I had been, if this had been around or if I had heard from you when I was 15, you know, maybe I wouldn't have even believed it, but it's all like, you know, little drops in the bucket and hopefully helping somebody out there. So, right. <laughs> I'm always looking to support people who want to live the life that they really want, you know, that want to um, have that life that they're maybe even too afraid to dream of. So thank you for this opportunity, Trisha. Thank you, Shannon. You're amazing. This is so wonderful. You have very good questions. Oh, good. I'm sorry. Sometimes I get a little like spirally because I'm like, the words don't come out fast enough. And I'm like, blah, blah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you for being uh, patient. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, this is I'm looking forward to listening to this because <laughs> me too. <laughs> I've been saying that some of the, you know, you know, because you have your own amazing podcast, but it's a real labor of love doing all the editing and you listen to it over and over again. And, but it's nice because I feel like it's doing a little bit of like nice brainwashing for me, you know, <laughs> it is. I know. I like, I like listening to it again. It's like, whoa, that's really helpful. <laughs> exactly. And then we always joke about the fact that um, it's super useful to do a podcast called Getting to Good Enough because you don't have to be perfect in editing it and putting it together. And in fact, having mistakes in it is useful to the people who are listening. So <laughs> thank you for that, too, because I have to remind myself of that every day when I'm working on it. I'm like, OK, yeah. you need to step away. <laughs> You're getting too myopic. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I'm in charge of the editing for ours, and we do very, very little editing. Oh, that's good to hear, because I think yeah. I need to, I really, every week I intend to do that, and then I get really, like, tinkery. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it was hard to do, because I wanted to, like, really edit out all the ums and ahs, and, like, out the extra spaces and stuff, and then I thought this is not fun. And Janine and I only agreed to do this as long as it was fun. So I'm going to have to figure out something else. And, um, yeah, I literally spend, well, you know, so like if we have a half hour episode, we record a half hour mm -hmm. and the only stuff I edit out. That's <laughs> why. Oh no, we have ducks. You, you have a quack. You have a quack. I have a quack. <laughs> The only um, stuff you edit out is like really egregious stuff. And sometimes we leave that in just because we think it's funny. Right. <laughs> like, I'll, maybe I'll leave the quacks in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to today's guest, Shannon Wilkinson. Do you want to take more risks in your creativity? Visit my blog, isitrecessyet.com to learn more ways to cultivate your creative courage and to subscribe to my mailing list. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Is It Recess Yet? on Apple Podcasts and iTunes and share it with a friend. Or write a review and rate this podcast to help build the Is It Recess Yet? community and to find like-minded listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Be well and see you next time.